Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. You're listening to Theater in College Hoops. I'm Subi, alongside me, nobody, riding solo again. Taylor has a wedding call that he had to take with his planner, which I can absolutely sympathize with, and I understand, can certainly appreciate why he has to take that. His wedding in a couple weeks, crunch time, as we near the finish line for the big guy, getting married so no worries there they've had far worse excuses in the past and then the shark he's packing up for hawaii yes he is headed over to the beautiful beautiful island of hawaii um maui more specifically and also Kauai. i think so if you're a teacher out there on the islands go find him go yell for the shark actually don't yell shark don't do that don't yell shark in hawaii but uh both of the boys are out as always, we're brought to you by the Barnburner Podcast Network. Go subscribe on whichever device it is that you use. Your college hooper of the week this week is John Sherna. Yes, the former forward for Northwestern by way of Glenn Ellen here in Illinois. I don't think people remember how good John Sherna really is. Please let me read you a little bit of his of his resume. He was first team all big 10 in 2011, 2012. He ranked first that same year in points, uh, points per game as well. He was top, uh, top 23 seasons in total rebounds. This guy was a machine. John Sherna was the alpha for the Northwestern Wildcats. He was a really, really good player uh, under, I believe it was Brian Carmody was the head coach there uh, at Northwestern, but John Sherna, yes, he is, your college hooper, a Bill Carmody, excuse me. Bill Carmody's not your college hooper of the week. It's John Sherna, but this is a John Sherna appreciation message. Check out the website, theaterandcollegehoops.com, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at CBB Theater. You should also follow me at SUB232 to find out where. And make sure to follow Taylor at Taylor Damel and the shark at the underscore shark underscore BB. Let's open the curtains. Kevin Sweeney is in the building. He was kind enough to join us. A lot of great insight on his rise through the journalism and the media ranks. The kid is only like 22, uh, 22 as, as we record, turning 23, but he is a writer for Sports Illustrated. I, I feel disrespectful in calling him a kid, but that's really what he is. Uh, he's a member of the U.S. Basketball Writers Association. He's already attained such a great deal of success writing for about college basketball. Uh, and I, I truly urge you to uh, follow him and, and read his work because he's he's a brilliant guy and he tells a story so well. And we actually talk about one of his stories about Coppin State this past year and the trials and tribulations of a small town program. But make sure to follow Kevin Sweeney at CBB underscore central. So not ours, which is CBB theater, but Kevin Sweeney's, which is at CBB underscore central. Central. Kevin was a lot of fun. So without further delay, let's go ahead and get to our interview with Kevin Sweeney. All right. We now welcome to the show a writer for Sports Illustrated and a member of the U.S. Basketball Writers Association. But 
perhaps most importantly on the heels of this past weekend. Uh, a Northwestern alum, we got Kevin Sweeney joining Theater and College Hoops today. Kevin, I know we're here to talk about basketball, and we will get into a abundance of items, but with the season still a few months away and the country kind of pavloving for the NFL, college football, week zero is in full swing. I got to congratulate you on your victory in Dublin, my friend. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I had no expectations going in. I mean, we, you know, Northwestern was horrible last year, um, but we just found, found a way, man. I think for me, because I'm so invested in the college basketball world and I have to see the, see it from like 30,000 feet at all times and kind of watch everything, when I can just sit back and like watch a game, just enjoy the game like, and be a fan again, there's, there's very few like emotions like that. It was a real roller coaster for like four hours, but – uh, I was happy the Cats found a way and uh, certainly a good way to kick off college football. And very nice to go into week one and not have to play and be 1-0 because now I can watch everybody else play and just laugh at them while, we, while we're sitting 1-0. So it's a great great weekend. Go Cats. It, it's kind of like watching your favorite NFL team get a win on Thursday night football yes. because then you can just watch Sunday, yes. and Monday, right? So I, I can definitely empathize there. But, Kevin, are you a little upset that the entire storyline has been about Scott Frost's, Frost's ineptitude and the onside kick? Are you looking for a little bit more love for Pat Fitzgerald and what you guys did right? Eh, I mean, like, kind of gotten used to it, I guess. Like, pretty much, I, I think if you go on Twitter after any time Northwestern beats any of, like, the brand-name teams in the – Big Tens, like Wisconsin, Iowa, in the, in the West, like obviously they beat those teams. They've beat those teams regularly. Nebraska, obviously, uh, every single time there's just like a, a huge push on Twitter of like Kirk Ferentz doesn't know what he's doing. Paul Christ is too conservative. Scott Frost is a loser. Like, oh, these we just lost to these crummy nerds. And it's like, whatever, man. Like, I don't care. Like, I'm happy to like fly under the radar. Like, Northwestern's won two Big Ten Wests in the last four years. And like, I don't think they're going to do it this year, quite frankly. But like they've been as competitive as anyone in the division, so like I, I don't really care at this point. Like that's the that's going to be the narrative, and we just kind of roll with it. Take it any way that you can, for sure. Hey, all right, so let's dive into a little hoops. We're going to get into your background, and obviously, we're we're really looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Give your feedback, your insights, your expertise, even your opinions on a lot of different topics, a lot of hot buttons this off season, going into this upcoming season. But I had to pivot a little bit, Kevin, in my prep because about an hour or two ago, we got a tweet from Dan Wolken, quote, NCAA board to vote Wednesday on dismantling IARP, other changes to infractions process, eliminating postseason bans on the docket for more discussion. First, have you heard about this? Has that been floated to you at all? And second of all, if you could break that down in layman's terms, what exactly does that mean? Uh, so I don't have anything more to report than what Dan's reported, what people like Ross Dellinger, who does a fantastic job on the uh, NCAA, I guess, beat for uh, for us at Sports Illustrated. Ross, I think, is as plugged in as anyone. Um, I'm not nearly as plugged in on that front. Um, but, you know, on the IARP front, uh, that was something that came out of, you know, after the FBI investigation, everything that happened, wherever. Basically, there was an immediate realization after the FBI stuff that, like, College basketball needed a stronger enforcement arm to like deal with punishments and whatnot. And so they built this IARP, which I don't even remember what it stands for, but it's some sort of independent review process. I think I think the I is independent and the R and P are review process. I don't remember what the A is. Uh, but either way, um, it has not gone well. It has been very slow. It has been not overly consistent with its rulings. There's been a lot of criticism, even from people who initially supported it. So from that perspective, uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. I don't necessarily know where things go from here from a punishment standpoint. I don't know. I think it was already getting pretty difficult to investigate these things and work through it because I think a lot of people have realized that there's no real upside in cooperating with, with the NCAA. But uh, I think this is just the latest in a long line of tweaks and changes that are going to happen at a, at a leadership level and NCAA wide and not directly because of NIL or not directly because of anything in particular, but I think, those things have accelerated the need to be like, all right, we need to be a lot more hands-off with how we operate. Uh, and so I think that's really what you're seeing more than anything. Looking forward to that ruling and that decision. It's crazy though, Kevin, think about the amount of changes that have happened ever since you've broken into this industry, which is what I want to get to next. I've spoken to a lot of rising stars and mostly on coaching staffs, right? I actually had Ruben Williams on, who is uh, an assistant coach essentially at the University of Arkansas. I think he's 22, 23 years old. You're around that same age, if I'm not mistaken. You got to share with us how you broke in 
uh, at such an early age and your rise has been so meteoric in such a quick amount of time, Kevin, can you describe your journey, honestly, from senior year of high school, I suppose, to where you are right now? Yeah. I mean, it, it actually, I guess kind of starts like my junior year of high school, crazy enough. So I was, you know, I grew up in Albany, New York and you know, it is as like normal suburbia as you could possibly imagine. Um, but it is a weird sports town in the sense that there is no real professional sports. There is a like low level minor league baseball team that like people care about in the summer, mostly for like the fireworks shows. Um, but people like really, really care about Siena basketball, like Siena basketball, you know, it's, you know whatever it's a you know, mid, mid, mid to low major program, but they play in a downtown arena. They get six, 7,000 in there. I mean, at their peak, in like 2009, 2010, when I was falling in love with college basketball, like they were putting 9,000, 10,000 people in the uh, in the stands. And Fran McCaffrey was coaching them. They won NCAA tournament games. And that was kind of how I fell in love with college basketball was just being around that. I mean, it's kind of like a mini Big East town in that regard. I don't have the financial resources, obviously, the Big East school does. But the energy around it is very comparable to, I think, what you would see at a place like a Providence or a Creighton. These kind of mid-level markets, like a, you know, Providence and Omaha are in gigantic cities. I mean, Albany isn't either. It's the capital. Uh, and I think there's just that, that energy about it. And I fell in love because Siena was so good. I didn't understand that that wasn't normal. It didn't, it didn't, like, it didn't click to me until much later that like, the little 3,000-student private school is not supposed to beat Ohio State in the tournament. They're not supposed to beat Vanderbilt. Uh, and so I fell in love with it. You know, as a kid, was a season ticket holder and you know, loved it. And so, quite frankly, my junior year of high school, uh, I wanted to go to journalism school. Um, I had played baseball growing up, not basketball, uh, but I knew I wanted to write about sports and kind of felt like if I, if I wanted to get into a good journalism school, I had to, like, show that I knew how to do journalism. So I just, like, started a blog. It was pretty bad uh, looking back at a lot of it, but, like, I was just doing it. And... I wrote, it was originally, I'll be going to focus on like Northeast mid-majors. Then it was like national mid-major. And then it was like whatever is in college basketball. Uh, I think I started February of 2016. By Christmas of 2016, I had a grand total of 100 Twitter followers. Uh, By by June of 2017, so six months later, I had 1,000. By July, I had 2,000. And it just took off. I got to Northwestern that year. I headed off the school in the fall. And I think while I was there, I certainly got a lot of breaks, right? I mean, I was at an amazing place uh, to study journalism. Um, but I think the biggest thing was like, like my freshman year, the first play, the first place I ever got a media credential was at a Loyola Chicago game. Guess what year that was? The other went to the final four. Wow. Like nobody cared. Like Loyola Chicago basketball was the tiniest little thing. There were 600 people at the game. I, I went to the first time I was the only media member there other than the like student newspaper kid, Loyola, Nick Schultz, who's actually a good friend of mine now. Like, so, Kevin, wait, did you know then about Sister Jean before the no. rest of the country did? Well, I, I knew that she'd come out and, like, give a prayer. Like, that, that's a thing. Like, there's, like, this pregame prayer that, like, she gives. And she, like, makes a joke about, like, hoping the Vanderbilt get a big W at the end of the game and, like, the students cheer. But, like, it was just weird because there was, like, 500 people there. Like, that was the thing. Like, now it's, like, a, now it's, like, a big deal. Like, everyone gives a shit. No, no one did then. So, it, it was – I mean, I was very fortunate uh, that they kind of caught on. And, like, I was – a little early to that party. Um, I was a little early to, you know, some other, you know, rising mid-majors that I kind of, you know, planted my stake and said, I think this is going somewhere. I thought that Nevada under Eric Musselman was going somewhere. And I have a ton of Twitter followers to this day of Nevada fans who just loved that I was like the first believer in Eric Musselman, you know? So um, I think really throughout the, throughout my like first few years in college, I was just, trying my best to seem like I was as professional as a Jeff Goodman or Jeff Borzello or one of these guys, even though I was like literally doing this, like in classes and like walking to a party and like seeing on like Twitter that like a game went final and like tweeting out something that made it sound like I watched the game. Like it wasn't anything insane. It wasn't anything like absurd. It was just the work. And uh, fortunately was able to intern at Sports Illustrated my senior year. I was actually supposed to do it junior year and then COVID hit um, and they canceled it. So instead of working out of the office in the spring of my junior year, I went in the winter remotely of my senior year, covered college basketball for them. You know, their their staff was unbelievable and they 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 
read what I had done before. And they basically said like, we don't want you doing like normal intern things. We want you to like, just help us with college basketball. We don't have a lot of that and we need help, whatever you can do. And so I was just like, sure, man. Like if you, if you would like me to write about college basketball, I will gladly do so. Uh, and like to think I acquitted myself well enough there, but they were you know willing to offer me a job when I graduated and uh, have now been there for 14 months as a full-time employee, which has been a insane ride. So uh, not sure there's like a real script there other than just like, I hate the word fake it till you make it. Cause I don't actually, I, I, I think I just had to like convince myself that I was as good at it as I like was, I think, I think I always knew what knew kind of knew what I was doing. I knew how to tinker my way through it. I just had to like convince myself that I wasn't an idiot, an idiot. Yeah. It wasn't like imposter syndrome. You wanted to avoid it being sort of like, like, am I an imposter here? No, I'm not. I actually know a lot about this stuff. I watch it on a daily, daily basis. I mean, it took it took probably until like February of this season, quite frankly, to not feel like I was just like idiot, like college kid. Uh, and I don't remember what it was, but I think I was just at a game once. When, in February, I went on like a long like tour of games in like early February. I was it was I was in Wyoming, I was in Colorado, I was in uh, I was at Purdue the day that Jaden Ivey hit the buzzer beater against Ohio State. Like, it was like five games in seven days, something like that. And I just I think I just like, remember like sitting in one of like the press conferences, and I was like you know what? Like I'm like as good at this as everybody else here. Like I, I, I can do this. Like I'm not, I'm not, I think a lot of times because I'm younger, I always just felt like I should take a back seat or whatever. And at the end of the day, I just kind of realized at some point, like, Hey, I, I belong here just as much as anybody else does. And uh, everybody else was so supportive of me. I mean, I would not be anywhere near where I am right now without the Jeff Goodman, the Jeff Borzellas, a lot of the people behind the scenes, like at sports illustrated who were so supportive, like, they put way more trust in me than I would have ever put trust in me. Uh, and that's been obviously huge. So uh, very fortunate to be 22 for another like two weeks and have like the literal dream job that I've had since I was like really like 10. So it, it's the best thing ever. And I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Happy early birthday, by the way. Thank that's you. terrific to know. Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask you if you had any sort of mentors or people leading you along the way. And I think it's it, it's these regular names that we hear a lot about um, on Twitter and obviously covering the sport for various different websites. If you take your look outside of Sports Illustrated or anyone that maybe you've been super close to, are there any other writers that you've come in contact with or come across at games where you kind of hold your breath, you're a little starstruck in the media space? It's so interesting. I think a lot of times it's the TV people just because you see them more. Um, like, you know, like if you were to see, like, like, I like ran into Robbie Hummel like several times. And there was, I, I think at one point in, at the big 10 tournament, like Robbie Hummel wanted to give Goodman um, St. Elmo's uh, the like famous uh, steakhouse and shrimp place in uh, Indianapolis. And like Hummel was like, Oh yeah, take my phone and like film this. And I was like, Robbie Hummel. Like I, you, you were playing like 10 years ago. Like I was watching you play when I was like in sixth grade. This is so weird. Uh, so I think that more than anything. Uh, I also think I realized very quickly and part of it's cause I have a really good relationship with a lot of them. Like, these guys are like so normal and like, it, it, it's like, it's like strange how approachable like a lot of these dudes have been. Uh, and it's actually been really cool. Like I text, we have like a huge group chat. I don't know if like anyone's actually talked about this on podcast. I don't really know if I'm supposed to, but who cares? I'm going to do it anyway. Um, like we have a huge group chat. That's like me and Goodman and Doster and Borzello uh, and Johnny Fanta and all lot of these younger guys, like the three men we've guys, the heat check guys, the sleepers guys. And it started probably 18 months ago now. And like to see the like climb for each and every one of them, including myself has been just so like, like the most rewarding thing of this last like 18 months. Like we had a day, one of the, like one of the Saturdays during the season where we're going through and we're like, okay, like one person in this chat, like had a hundred Twitter followers like six months ago. And now it's like sitting press row at like a Carolina game. Uh, another person here is like broadcasting a, a, a cop and state game. Uh, I'm at a Purdue game today, you know, Goodman's here, uh, you know, John Fanta's on Fox calling the Big East championship game. Like it was, it was just unbelievable to sit, sit there and be like, like, we're just like a bunch of idiots who love college basketball. And like, here we are. Uh, so I think that's been as cool as anything is like how approachable those guys have been at the top and helping some of the younger guys climb up. And I think that's something I'm really like passionate about now is trying. And again, I'm still, I still like could walk into a college class and no one would like question it, but, uh, however I can help people who are trying to chart the similar path. Like I really want to, because there's no like 
there, there's no like reason that I have had the luck I've had. I feel like a lot of times in this, I've just been put in a lot of good positions and taken advantage of them. And I hope that I can maybe put other people in some decent positions over the next uh, several years. Definitely. And they're all very approachable. Like you had mentioned, the sleepers guy we had, uh, we had Carter Elliott on uh, a little bit ago. We've had John Fanta on as well. And, you know, sort of to relate to what you were saying about like seeing a Robbie Hummel and then you end up realizing they're just normal, good dudes. I think the two biggest guests that we've had that I even was shocked that we got a response from was SEC player of the year, Chris Lofton. And then also we had Landon Lucas on the program. And I was like, I was watching you guys growing up when, I mean, Chris Lofton certainly was one of the pillars of me falling in love with the game and to be able to sit down with him and pick his brain was a lot of fun. So I can definitely appreciate uh, all, all that you're saying there. So you had actually mentioned in that response, Kevin, and this is also uh, part of some of the best work that I think you've done. I read your article on Coppin state fascinated with that story. Um, if you haven't go read it on his Twitter, shout out your Twitter account real quick. Yeah. It's, it's at CBB underscore central and it's pinned right there. So you'll be able to find the article. Great read. Kevin, give us a little bit of a very high-level synopsis of what uh, the story is about, first of all. But second of all, your your research into it and how close you were. I mean, were you on those bus rides and those plane rides with Coppin State as well? Go into a little detail there. So the, like, 30,000 feet, feet of the story is basically, like, everyone envisions college basketball being this, like, oh, yeah, like, you're Duke, you're Kentucky, you fly on chartered planes and, like, have shoe deals and like living it up, especially now in like the NIL age, like Oscar Sheboy is going to make like $3 million. Like Oscar Sheboy is going to make more in NIL this year than like Coppin State's entire men's basketball budget. Like, you know, Coppin State's entire athletic budget is smaller than Tony Bennett's salary. And Tony Bennett's like the 10th highest paid coach in college basketball. Uh, you know, there is a lot in, you know, this 360 team world. There is so much below the Dukes and the Kentuckys. And not all of it is as low as where Coppin State is, which is in the bottom 10 probably of Division One in terms of resources. Uh, but I wanted people to kind of understand like what that life is like, what, you know, traveling and playing by games to fund the program is. And you know, you're basically Coppin State spent a month on the road. They spent they played like 13 games in 30 days or something like that. That number played. is insane. 13, almost damn near half a month yeah. of basketball. And I mean, they played an NBA schedule. They played five road games in seven days. They played two back-to-backs in that stretch. One was a night game into a day game. NBA teams would veto that schedule. They had to do it because it's how they fund their their department. So, uh, you know, I just, I, I wanted to kind of highlight some of the ups and the downs of that and like make sure people understand like there's a different side to college basketball than like the stuff you see of like everybody trying to go pro, everybody this. Like these are kids who want an opportunity. Like they, they dreamed of playing Division One basketball, but they didn't dream of it at Coppin State, they dreamed of it at Duke, they dreamed of it at Syracuse, they dreamed of it at a place where like, they are like a thing instead of just like a little blip on the map in, in this you know gigantic sport. So uh, the story came about because I wanted to go to a game on opening night. Like I was just like, I'm bored. Like I, I want to be able to go to a game and there's not a lot going on other than Champions Classic. Like a, and, a Coppin State game specifically, or just well, any, no, any, game. Game, any game? Any game. I literally just was like, I want to go to a college basketball game on opening night just to say it's open, we're back, whatever. Uh, and Champions Classic was happening that night, and nothing really big otherwise. Uh, Jeremy Wu, our NBA draft guy, was going to Champions Classic, so I wasn't going to go. Uh, and I was like, I, I want to go to a game. And I looked through the schedule, and I was like, okay, well, Loyola's playing Coppin State. I live a mile from Loyola's campus, so that's not a great game. I guess I'll cross that one off the list. Uh, and then I looked at DePaul's schedule. DePaul's playing Coppin State the next day. I was like, why is Coppin State playing a back-to-back? Like, what is going on? So I then looked at Coppin State's schedule, and I was like, okay, their first week, they played these five games in seven days to start it. That's like a pretty interesting story. And I told my editor about it, and I was basically like, I think I could, could get some access into the program. Uh, I could write like a quick story about like their crazy week, maybe like a column, be like a thousand words, in and out, whatever. She's like, yeah, that's a good idea. Like, why don't you like think about doing that? And then she mentioned it. She like passed up the food chain and it kind of got to like some of the like bigger editors, like the people who handle like the features and the mag stories at Sports Illustrated. And they're like, that actually might be like a huge story. Like that might be something that you could like really like sink your teeth into and like focus on over like a longer stretch of time. Uh, So I did. I spent I only spent two days physically with them. I spent three days. I spent the three days there in Chicago. So Monday through Wednesday. Um, 
I went to the hotel and watched them do film. I sat in uh, a team meal. I walked around with them at shoot around. I went to practice and sat near them at during the games. Like I, uh, you know, I watched them lose by 58 to Loyola and then nearly lead at halftime the next day to DePaul. Like it was just this crazy up and down. Um, and it just, the story got weirder and weirder as it went. I mean, there was ups and downs in terms of the play, of how, how well the team played. Uh, the night before the story published, this was like the story. I think the thing that really helped it go viral was the fact that uh, they forgot their jerseys the night before um, to play Drexel. And, Part of that was they had had some like coaching staff turnover briefly where someone stepped away from the program um, and that led to some like organizational collapses, basically. Uh, but whatever the case, we have this like long feature story, like 3,500 words prepared on Coppin State, of all things. And somehow the night before it's going to run, they forget their jerseys, which is like the perfect little nugget. So I'm sitting there like banging out like these updates and like texting my editors and calling people uh, trying to figure out what happened and what the story was and. Uh, it ran the next morning and it, I was really pleased with the feedback because I felt like I had shown a lot of, I, 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 I was, any time I got a comment that was like, wow, like I didn't know that I didn't understand how that worked in college basketball. Like that was exactly what I had wanted to do. And so I was really grateful that they gave me the access they did and Juan Dixon and their whole, all their players were amazing to me. Uh, but I, I, I thought it was a really cool story. Um, and I, I encourage you all to read it because I think it's pretty evergreen. Uh, they started, I think, 1-14 and um, and wound up playing in the conference championship game. And if not for Norfolk State, would have went to the NCAA tournament. So uh, that's just kind of the, the, the ups and downs of that lower level of college basketball. Uh, and uh, certainly a, a cool story I will never forget. Putting that win-loss record into context was was tremendous. In me reading that, right? So first and foremost, my, my biggest takeaway, I guess, was as a casual observer, maybe a little bit more of a casual observer, people know the name Juan Dixon. That name carries cachet in college basketball circles. And yet here he is spearheading a program that still has to go through all of these trials and tribulations that you had highlighted, right? That was a big thing for me. Number two, just looking at it on your couch, right? You're, you're watching SportsCenter, not top 10. And you're kind of giggling, laughing a little bit about the them forgetting their jerseys, right? I don't know if that actually made Sports Center not top ten, but that's certainly the criteria. It yeah, it should have. But then you sort of you read that and you're like, there, there's a soft spot for them where you say to yourself, God, they're just going through this, like you had mentioned, a grown man schedule, right? Not a not a college basketball schedule. These are sort of the things. These are the pitfalls, maybe the obstacles that some people don't understand come along with a smaller program and so you sort of empathize with them a little bit more and then you look at the end of the season like you had mentioned they're one win away from the NCAA tournament after going through that absolute gauntlet of a first half of the season all of the things that they had to overcome it puts that season into into perspective and and it makes you realize how special it truly was Right. Because at the end of the day, people are just going to say they might just look at the Coppin State record, which was around probably what, 500. Um, They didn't make the thing. Yeah, they didn't make the tournament. They don't know all these sort of things. Right. They they may not. They'll probably forget that they were in the in the conference tournament championship last year. So I think you did a great job of actually putting all all that into perspective. And I think it dropped sometime in December, but it really hit home reading it here in September. I appreciate it. And I I think. there's a gazillion reasons why like every college basketball person doesn't want uh, the auto bids to go away. I know that's been a a discussion lately, but I think like that story to me, like, as I think about it now, like it's such a great example of why it can't like, why it would like, like Coven state season would be without meaning otherwise. Like they, they went, they went through all of that in November and December in their minds because it was preparing them to compete in the conference tournament. Like their whole season, they were going to go through whatever it took to have three days to try to prove that they could play in the NCAA tournament. Like that was, that was their whole goal. And, and all of it would be worth it. All of the, all the grind, all of the fights. I mean, the team literally like was at each other's throats at times, like did not have a lot of fun. Like, uh, you know, it's not all fun and games. I mean, I got stories from people afterwards, like people who'd worked at Coppin state several years ago and they said they'd worked you know, three or four years before they were working there. Uh, there was an issue where the hotels were booked for the wrong night. So they slept in the lobby. Like the whole team slept in the lobby of the hotel. It's unbelievable. Like everything that they went through was to have that one chance at like the dream, the NCAA tournament. And if we get rid of that, 
we lose like the soul of probably 200 of the 360 teams. And I hope that anyone who's making those decisions keeps that in mind. Very well put. So let's move forward now to this upcoming season. I'm already, I'm already ready for it, man. I'm ready for tip. You had a great win, a great addition, obviously one and know with Northwestern football, but you had a loss as well this off season. Pete Nance is now moving on to North Carolina. One of the biggest transfer names and immediate impact guy. What are you looking for with Pete Nance in Carolina? I mean, I'm excited for Pete. Uh, I'll, I'll say this, like Pete Nance came to Northwestern and was like, he, they, there was just so much pressure on him for a number of reasons, right? He came in coinciding with the new arena, coinciding with like all this energy after an NCAA tournament. He's got this last name of like NBA pedigree. He's got, he's the highest rated recruit in program history. Like he was terrible his first season at Northwestern. He was really bad his second year. Like, how many guys in that spot walk away? How many of those guys quit and they transfer down, they go home, they play it, you know, he, he transfers down, he plays at Kent State, he averages 13 points a game and moves on. Like, Pete Nance committed himself to the work, became an all-Big Ten caliber player, became a guy who I think will be one of the 50 best players in the sport this year. And I think is a great fit for North Carolina because, while he's not as good a shooter as Brady Manick, I think he can do a lot of the same things and a lot of actually better things for North Carolina because he can really, really pass. Uh, he can switch a little bit defensively. Uh, he's smart and cerebral, and they can use him in a lot of different ways. They can use him as a backup to Baycott, which they didn't really want to have to do with Manic. Uh, so I think they're going to be able to use him at the four. They're going to be able to use him at the five. Uh, I, I'm, I'm excited for him to be surrounded with better guards. I felt like so many times last year he made good plays and set up guys like Boo Booey and Chase Audige for Northwestern. And they didn't take advantage of those opportunities. I think Caleb Love and RJ Davis will be a little bit better positioned to do that. And, and he gets to go compete for a championship. And he walks away with a degree uh, from one of the best schools in the world. So super happy for Pete. I think North Carolina is the best team in the country on paper. They're the best starting five, if nothing else. And that's a pretty darn good place, place to start. So uh, I think it was the perfect missing piece for North, for North Carolina. Uh, and I think a great fit for Pete as well. And an opportunity to compete at the highest level in his last year. And then, I think potentially playing the pros. Like I think he would have had a real chance to get a two-way contract if he had stayed in the draft. And uh, I think just saw the opportunity at Carolina and decided that was something he couldn't pass on. Transfers are always going to be, I mean, they, they, they're even more prominent nowadays uh, than they have been in the past, but every single season, there's always one or two transfers that sort of highlight the off season. Pete Nance is certainly one of them. Let's stick with Northwestern. I want to take it back a little bit. This may have been your freshman year. Keep me honest here, but I was doing a bit of research. Okay. I think it's fair to say that Northwestern in 2017 may have had the wildest first weekend of any team that only played one weekend. Okay. So we talk about that Vanderbilt game where Vanderbilt suffered a brain fart, unfortunately fouled, I think, a, a player. I, I forget the exact scenario, but they fouled one of the Northwestern guys when it was tied. Yeah, it was, when he was going up for yeah, a shot. Was it, it was not even going up for a shot. He, he intentionally fouled. fouled. He thought they were trailing. Yeah, Matthew Fisher Davis. had a great career for Vanderbilt. Which, yeah, brain, brain fart. So Northwestern goes on to play Gonzaga next. And then, of course, now that I have a Northwestern guy on, I have to ask you about the crying meme kid. You lose a heartbreaker against Gonzaga. Many saying that you kind of got screwed out of that game as well. Uh, take us back to you watching uh, those two games, if you can. So I was, I was a senior in high school. So I actually got so, – so Northwestern won on a Thursday, uh, the first round. Uh, Friday was the day I got my acceptance letter to Northwestern. So I was much more in tune Saturday to watch Northwestern Gonzaga. Uh, you're the king of timing. I got to give you that, man. I don't know. I don't know if I am or not because the my Jersey stuff has been a complete roller coaster, <laughs> like complete downward shoot for the program ever since then. Uh, but regardless, I mean, yeah, I was locked in that day and, uh, I, I still don't know that they, they would have won, but it was obviously all 10. Uh, one fun fact is that the crying Northwestern kid is actually the son of Jim Phillips. Who's the, who is the athletic director. He's now the commissioner of the ACC. Um, so I saw him like three years later. Uh, I was on the sidelines, uh, covering football when Northwestern was playing Iowa the day that they won the big 10 West in 2018. Uh, and like saw the kid and I was like, wait a minute, like, I know this, I know this kid. That's, that's the crying kid. Uh, so that was very funny. But uh, yeah, ever, ever since I was accepted to Northwestern, the program has been in a complete downward spiral. Uh, so, so any, any Wildcat fans who have hate mail to send to me, they can certainly do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, last year I was looking at, uh, it took it, well, I should say it took me around December, maybe January 
to strongly and confidently say that the best mid-major conference or the most entertaining, okay, the most theater that was being produced from a mid-major conference was the Mountain West. Now, it might have been me being loopy at 11.30 p.m., watching Wyoming go up against UNLV, but I swear to God they had so many great finishes in that conference. And, of course, it produced, I think, four teams from the Mountain West. They they didn't do so hot in the tournament, fine. But during the regular season, the Mountain West was pure theater. Can you give us a, a conference, a mid-major conference, that will be the most exciting, that you are telling folks to watch? Yeah, I mean, I, I will I will double down on your Mountain West take in that uh, I went out I, – I, flew into Colorado and went to a Wyoming game and a Colorado state game back to back days. And it was the Wyoming Boise game when Wyoming won and stormed the court. And then the next day, Colorado state won on a David Roddy buzzer beater and then stormed the court. So uh, yeah, a lot, a lot, I was two for two on mountain West court storms. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I don't know that there will be a league that was as crazy as that was this year, but I think conference USA is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Like UAB and jelly Walker are, are kind of like a known story because of the success that jelly had in March, but like, I don't think people realize that Eric Gaines, who they added as well from LSU, is really, really good. They're going to be awesome uh, in the backcourt, and they play a fun style with Andy Kennedy. Western Kentucky's loaded up a little bit uh, with, with the talent that they brought in. They already have a great point guard in Davion McKnight. Uh, North Texas with Grant McCaslin, they're so good defensively, but they make shots and they play really, you know, just tough physical games and are hard to play against. And so I, th- I just think the top of that league is going to be so fun and it is traditionally the last several years been more of a one bid. Uh, I hope it can get to two this year, but I think part of that is what makes it so entertaining, right? I mean, North Texas last year had a tremendous year. They lose one game late in the regular season and then they lose the conference tournament. They're out. Uh, and, and I think that type of theater is, is one of the things that makes it so exciting uh, to watch mid-major conference play is just the, the pressure on every night. It's kind of like college football in that regard where you lose one game and all of a sudden it jeopardizes your, your whole postseason hopes. So, uh, certainly, I uh, think, think Conference USA has a lot chance to be out of fun. Certainly Mountain West as well. Uh, the A-10, I think, is going to be really, really competitive top to bottom. Um, but well, this, is, this is good, actually, Kevin, that you mentioned the A-10 because I'm in a group chat with some of my friends. And we're going back and forth about what we perceive the A-10 to be in terms of how many bids they usually get. Okay? How, do you per- how, do you, how many bids do you think they'll get this upcoming season? I think probably two to three again. It'd be great to get back to four. And I actually think they're headed that way just with the coat, the caliber of coaches that have been hired in this league. Uh, obviously, you bring in Loyola Chicago, another pr- excellent program. Drew Valentine does a tremendous job. Um, but you bring in Frank Martin. That's a huge upgrade over Matt McCall at UMass. You bring in Archie Miller. That's a big upgrade at URI over uh, David Cox. Kim English, I, th- I still think, I know they had a kind of a shaky issue year one, but you know they still improved the talent level and they're very talented again. They have a chance to be pretty, pretty special. Like the caliber of coaches in this league right now, even GW, I think, did a good job to hire Chris Caputo. Like, I, I really think that the caliber of talent and the caliber of coaches in this league is really strong. Um, Dayton and, and St. Louis have a great, great, great looking teams this year. I think VCU and Loyola both also look very, very strong. Uh, so I think you probably get Dayton, Salou, and then one of VCU and Loyola uh, next year in, in, into the dance. But I, I think if the hope is to try to get it to four, four plus, which is where they got to at their high watermark a couple of years back. I think that's possible with the way that the league has invested and hired coaches and uh, not just head coaches, but staffing and, and NIL support and things like that. All those things that are really important right now. I think so far teams and administrations in the A-10 have done a really nice job with investment. And I think that'll show itself down the line. So I was comfortable with saying three. Okay. And the buddy that kind of spearheaded this conversation, you ever, you ever be in a group chat and someone just drops a bomb and you're like, what the hell are you saying? This kid's basically saying a 10 a one bid league. And I, I definitely took umbrage to that. Right. I, I, you just, whoever wins the, the conference tournament, there's so many good players or so many good teams. I should say, I think we forgot about Davidson too, yeah. that will always field a competitive roster. Who knows Bob McKillop stepped down. Um, but I think, two additional teams will have a good enough, robust enough resume where they will get in as an at-large. So I had to ask the expert here, and let's stay in the A-10, a couple of names that you had actually mentioned because we got some user questions as well. Uh, let's start with Rhode Island. How about that? Archie Miller, back in the fold. I think he preached loyalty like a million times uh, during his introductory press conference. 
what do you think the expectations are? Maybe not necessarily for the team, but Archie coming back after a couple of years off the sideline. What are you looking for with Archie there at URI? What was so interesting about the way it went down for Archie at Indiana was like, I never was overly confident that he was getting the job done there, but I never ever felt like he wasn't a good coach. Right. And, and again, he's only really had the experience at Dayton, which is a place where everyone wins in Indiana where he never failed, but never really elevated it in a way that you expect to at Indiana. Um, but I put Dayton I, to an elite eight. That's I right. think that's more than day, winning. Like, he builds good teams. Yeah. I, one, like the guy, like, like the guy is a good basketball coach. And like, I think it raises the floor at URI quite a bit. I think the interesting thing for me was, you know, a lot of people in the industry felt like Archie could have waited out for a high major job. And there just wasn't that opportunity this year with the way that the board shook out in terms of coaching moves. And I just don't think he wanted to wait another year. Um, But because of that, I think when he took the job, when you talk to people, people expected the way he'd recruit would be very like one year flip. Like let's come in, let's get transfers, one year guys, two year guys, talent, talent, throw it at the, you know, throw it at the wall and hope we're a top 75 team and I get out of town, right? I go, go to NC State, right? Which is the which is the job that everyone kind of speculated for him because he's an alum and whatever. Uh, he didn't I think do even that Sean, I think even Sean was linked to NC State a couple years ago too. Yes. Like the way he built this roster is built to last. And I think that's a really good thing if you're a URI fan is that like regardless of where he goes, I think he'll stay. I think like the way he built it is very obvious that he thinks there's a, a multi-year thing here. He wants to build it up to the way he built Dayton to winning in the NCAA tournament. But Brian Freeman, three years of eligibility. Anthony Harris, two or three years of eligibility. Brandon Weston, three years of eligibility. Uh, they brought back the uh, Ishmael Ejek kid who is two or three left. Uh, Alex Chaku, uh, three years. Uh, they brought in this freshman who's really, really talented, Jeremy Fumena up front. Like, this is a younger team. So I, I think for year one, I temper expectations a little bit just because, you know, it's tricky to win right away. And in, in, in a league as competitive as that league. And when you bring in young players, like you're dealing with that, right? Like obviously as good as it is to have a great talented young core, it also means that when you're playing, you know, slew and everybody's 23 years old, it's going to be harder. So uh, I think they'll probably be in the middle this year, but I think if you're a URI fan, you'd be excited about the, baseline of talent that they he's established and some of the guys they're bringing in 2023 are really really talented as well uh guys i saw in the uh, aau circuit this summer so i like the direction under archie no question let's stay in the a10 and let's go to umass crazy anticipation at the flagship university okay frank martin comes in and i'm close to a lot of umass people i think what they were lacking the past few years ever since really that i think it was 2017 maybe 2016 run with uh chaz as their point guard i'm forgetting the point guard's name chaz something but Derek kellogg was the head coach who's also back now uh funny how that works but the juice just hasn't been there in amherst and now I think it is. And there's there's just this crazy amount of anticipation. I feel like that's followed Frank Martin, even from his South Carolina days, right? He goes to the Final Four in South Carolina. He never really reached even, uh, you know, the tournament ever since then. And so this anticipation is building and, it's, and, and people are pumped at, at UMass. What do you think the expectation should be? All right, so let me ask you in a different way. What do you think the turnaround time is for the Minutemen in terms of getting back to the tournament? Well, I don't know. Getting back to the tournament, I think it's going to be hard. But I, I think, like, they already have the talent this year to do that, right? Like, it's so many new faces, and it's a new coach, and it's a coach who, stylistically, if you look back at his time at South Carolina, takes a while to kind of figure out rotations and whatnot. So I think that's the main concern early on is like, are they going to compete this year? Or are they going to dig themselves a hole in the non-con and have to dig themselves out of it? But I think like right now they have like close to at-large level talent in terms of what they have on this roster. Like top 60 former recruit, Raziel Diggins. Fernandes is outstanding at the point. Wildens Levesque is a legit high major center. Uh, the Gapare kid they just brought in uh, is a high major recruit. RJ Luis and Keon Thompson recruited at that level. Like this roster looks to me like a roster I could go to war with in the ACC and not feel like I'm lacking horses. So I think right away they've done, they've done a really nice job. I think the, the thing, like the buzz, like you said, I mean, I was concerned when the hire was made because I just felt like Frank had run out of steam a little bit at South Carolina. And I think that's natural, right? Like you reach this incredible high, uh, you're struggling, you're kind of, you know, you know, stuck in, stuck in the mud and you've got the fan base kind of turned on you. And I think I was worried that Frank was going to view this kind of as like a retirement job and like coast his way through. 
And it's been anything but. I mean, the energy he has brought to this thing, the staff hire she's made to bring in two guys with head coaching experience and Derek Kellogg, obviously, and also Alan Edwards. Uh, the energy he's brought in recruiting, the way he's engaged with the UMass fan base, like even on just like Twitter and stuff, is like a big deal. Uh, so he has really brought a new life to this thing. They've recruited, for the most part, Northeast kids, right? Diggins is from Philly. Uh, Matt Cross is a Massachusetts kid coming home. Gapari is from New Zealand, but he spent the last couple of years in the Northeast. Like, it's important at that place to recruit the NEPSAC preps and recruit in the DMV. He's done that already. So I think I think the future is very bright. I, I don't think it's an easy job, and I, I think it's going to always be hard to get over that hump and be at large good. But I, I, I really think that you couldn't have asked for a better start to the Frank Martin era than what we've already seen. I'm really looking forward to those two teams in the A-10 under new tutelage. All right, let's go down to the Southwest, all right? A little barbecue here, Kevin. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold your hand. I'm going to have you follow me into this absurd line of thinking that I have, all right? Uh, the state of Texas. I think they have seven tournament teams. Uh, I may need your help naming them all, but we go Texas, Texas Tech, Tamu, North Texas, TCU, that's six, and Baylor. Uh, actually, Baylor, six, and then I think, oh, Houston. Houston. So, Houston. So those seven right there. I'm looking at them. If I, or Houston and Baylor, to me, are your barbecue, like your brisket. Number ones, must have, all right? And then you look at Texas, even TCU, um, and I'm thinking of someone else might be your – you know, baked beans with the barbecue burnt ends. They're really good, but they're not your number ones. Basically what I'm telling you, Kevin, is I truly think that all seven of those teams are going to make the NCAA tournament. And I actually think five of them, barring scheduling, of course, in the tournament, are going to make uh, the Sweet 16. Am I crazy in thinking that? I don't think so. I mean, like, I obviously, like, matchup dependent. I mean, I I think... Last year, TCU had, like, some pretty strong flaws. And I think there's been a little bit too much TCU. Like, I think TCU's going to make the NCAA tournament. They're probably a top 25 team. Like, I've seen some, like, top 12 TCU rankings. And I'm like, that's really high for a team that turned it over. Like, it's it was its job last year and, like, can't make a three. Like, that, that that's, like, a little concerning to me. But I, I think I think you're right. There's two national contenders in Houston uh, and, uh, and Baylor. And I wouldn't be surprised, quite frankly, if – uh, if Texas winds up in that uh, category as well. I know they're kind of a weird build. You know, they've got a lot of guys who need the ball in their hands, but Tyrese Hunter's awesome. Uh, you know, they're so old now with a car and, and Timmy Allen back. And I wonder if you're two in the system with Beard will simplify some things a little bit. And I think that's huge, Kevin. I'm totally with you because last year they were getting a heaps of praise. And I was saying to myself, it's going to take them time to gel. You don't just throw all these transfers with the first year head. I mean, first year head coach, obviously new system at Texas. They have this off season. They got a bit more continuity. I'm big on Texas now. Yeah. I like them a lot. And I think Hunter will help them to have two point guards on the floor. I, I think that's just so valuable. And like running their offense last year was so bogged down. It was ugly. Like they were top 15 in Ken Palm. I think I actually pulled this out for somewhere else, but uh, Texas finished. It's had its best Ken Palm finish in a decade last year. Like they were better than any shock a year. They were better than the year that they went, got the three seed last year in Ken Palm. Like they were really good still, but they just like did not play an appealing style of basketball. They were never like really feel felt like a contender. And so because of that, I think it just felt like a very disappointing season. So I, I certainly think they have a great chance. And, and like you said, I mean, there's, there's real depth here. Like Texas tech is going to defend TCU is going to rebound and be physical and I'm finished strong. I, I want to see them. You know, I, I, you worry last year, like how much of that run was, what was, was a glimpse and how much of it was a, a sign of the future. Right. I think that's, that's really what I wonder. And you're referencing I, that I, NIT run to the title yeah, game, right? Yeah, certainly that. And also the, the run in the SEC tournament, you know, obviously that, that put them in the position. Uh, so I, I, I'll be interested to see them. I think I see them very much as a bubble team, uh, but, but the state of the state of Texas basketball is so, so strong right now. Um, and, and I think it's interesting uh, I don't want to completely segue into oblivion here, but uh, talking to people around the industry, everyone wants a piece of it. Like every single staff in the Southeast and really in the Southwest as well, all the way out to California. And if, if, if you are, if you are at all in the South of the United States, you want a Texas ace on your staff who can recruit the state of Texas and get in, uh, in those classrooms and get in those AAU programs. Uh, and it's so hard to find right now. Like, I'll give you an example. And, and this is not to say this guy's a great coach or a, a, a poor coach. I've, I've heard unbelievable things about Brandon Chappelle. He's the, uh, he's the new assistant coach at Texas. He was just hired uh, this, I believe, August. I think it was 
this month that he got the job officially. Brandon Chappelle was at Lamar at the end of the 2020-21 season. That staff got fired. Brandon Chappelle then went from there to UNLV with Kevin Kruger, a first-time head coach in the Mountain West, and a year later he's on the staff at Texas, right? And it's because Brandon Chappelle is seen as a guy who can help recruit in the state of Texas and make high-level moves in that state. That's the value that a guy who can recruit Texas has right now in this industry. And someone like Brandon Chappelle has become a very valuable commodity in this industry. And there's so many other guys that I can name. And I'm going to forget them if, if, if I try to name them all. And someone's going to text me like, you forgot X guy who's a real ace in Texas. And I'm going to get, get, get a bunch of hate. So uh, I'm not going to name everybody. But like, the, the, there is such a room right now and such a need across college basketball for guys who understand the state of Texas. And it goes beyond just the college programs. It's the high school programs and everything below. It's an awesome basketball power right now. I mean, that is truly reading between the lines. I would not have been able to come up with that, identify that, see that like you did just then. So, I, that, I mean, I learned something new every day on this podcast, so I appreciate that, Kevin. Uh, let's go to the Northeast back again. Can Providence – do they have any shot at repeating as Big East champs? So, I think they're more talented than they were last year. Like, I, I really do. Like, Devin Carter is going to be really good for them. Uh, Bryce Hopkins is going to be really good for them. And they've got great point guard play with Bynum, and I think that's a great step. I I think it's such a tall task, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're like better in Ken Palm this year. And it's just like, it, you're not going to replicate the close game success that they had. It's just not, it's not sustainable. Um, I say that as a Northwestern football fan, which is kind of done that like three years, you know, every other year. So I don't know if I can really say it's not sustainable, but I'm just not buying that like this year, they're going to win as many close games as they did. So I think they probably come short in a big title race, but I think they could be really, really good again. Like I, I think that they're built to be successful I know a lot of people have talked about the Nate Watson loss. Ed Croswell was really good last year. People didn't realize how impactful he was defensively on the glass. I think that won't be as big of a drop-off at the center spot as people realize. I think they're in good shape. Uh, it's it's going to be interesting to watch, especially because the notorious big dog on the block in the Big East, always Villanova. But there is a little bit of reservation there with Kyle Neptune stepping in, taking over for Jay Wright. So looking forward to that. Dan Hurley and UConn to me is interesting. It's almost like, pardon my French here, a case of blue balls with them because they're waiting to get back to the Jim Calhoun days uh, for, for, I mean, you could even mention Kevin Ollie days, I suppose he won a title. I, I, I kid, but they lose to, they lose to New Mexico state last year, right? And I think that was shocking for a lot of UConn fans to not win one singular game in the NCAA tournament. Keep me honest here, as Dan Hurley won an NCAA tournament game at UConn. I don't know if he has. So he's not on the hot seat, but what can, I mean, what does he need to exceed here? What does he need to reach uh, in stores this upcoming year? Well, I think it's one of the challenging parts of that job, right? It's like he took it over in a really tough place and he's won. He's brought in great talent. He just took you to the NCAA tournament, got a, got a good seed, you know, beat Villanova on his home court, stormed the court, whole deal. Well, I guess he was ejected at that point. But, you know, his team did. He built that roster. Uh, like, they, they, did, they had a great year. Um, but because it's a place where national championships are, are the standard, like, you're going to feel it when you lose in the first round. There are places you won't feel it, but you're going to feel it there. Uh, and, and so I think you, know, you got to get the monkey off your back. And he's not the only one, right? Like, Brad Underwood's got to do it in Illinois. There's a play, that's a place with expectations, right? Chris Holtman has to do it at Ohio State. That's a place with expectations. So, um, yeah, obviously not hot seat. Uh, he, he's he's secure there. But uh, for him to be looked at as not just a placeholder at a place where, uh, you know, there's such a brand and such a standard, he's got to win in the NCAA tournament. And he's got he's, he's got to build a Big East championship caliber team. And I, I don't know that he's done that yet. I think they've got a great group this year. I'm excited to see how they look playing a little bit smaller with Andre Jackson at the four and spreading out for their transfer guards like Aline and Tristan Newton. We've got a great big man in Sonogo. Uh, so I think the program is really healthy uh, and, and they recruit at such a high level that I think they'd be fine. But, you know, at some point, like people are going to get pissed off and keep losing to Mexico State. So got to get got to get that. Getting the monkey off your back is a big thing with these upcoming coaches here, these next two coaches I want to bring up. And it's funny because Rick Barnes has a Final Four under his belt, but Vols fans, especially after last year's shocking loss to some, uh, they, I mean, they were they were a great team last year, the Vols, and then they lost to a team many thought shouldn't have even been in the tournament in Michigan. Uh, Eric Musselman, there's a lot more positive outlook at Arkansas for sure, but you kind of look back at it and you say, well, two Elite Eights, I really don't want to 
have my heart broken in a third straight elite eight. Uh, is there pressure on either of these coaches must more so to break through to a final four Barnes has that under his belt, but I, I suppose is there, is there pressure on either of these coaches to actually make it to that final four this, this year? I think Barnes more than Muss, if only because like, I just think Muss has kind of built this machine in Arkansas. I think the expectations are, are the expectations are very high there. But I think they, the thing that they were so desperate for was to get to a Sweet 16, get to an Elite Eight, because that was the bugaboo with Mike Anderson. That was the bugaboo with guys before that. Like, it's like, unbelievable to think that, like, Nolan Richardson in 1996 was the last time they made an Elite Eight before Moss did it last, this, this past year, like, or two years ago, and then did it again this year and beat Gonzaga. Like, Moss has the big wins that ends up turning against high level teams. He just couldn't quite get over the hump and, and, and get to the Final Four. I, I, I think everybody kind of sees them doing a great job. I think everyone at Arkansas is very, very happy with the success that they've had, the success that they've had in recruiting with Nick Smith coming in this year. They've built a wall around the state of Arkansas when great talents come in, like a Moses Moody, like a Nick Smith. I think that's something that matters when you talk about how a coach is perceived. So I think I think from a, like a legacy standpoint, it, it matters more to Rick Barnes to break through one more time and get to a Final Four and prove that, like, look, yes, I've had my tournament struggles, but I can do this. Then I think for Moss, who's still, I think, on the upswing of his career, still has a lot of time. Uh, and I still think, I think it should be perceived as one of the, you know, 15 or so best coaches in the country for the job he's done at Arkansas. I mean, he's just done a fantastic job. He wins at a high level. He's now made three second weekends in his career, um, dating back to Nevada. That's a huge deal. So uh, he he is a high, high level coach. And I, I, have, I have very little doubt about Moss, regardless of final four breakthrough or not. I think it's so interesting, those two fan bases, Hogs fans and Vols fans, right? Both of them have anticipation and excitement for this upcoming year. I feel like there's this dark cloud in Vols fans' heads, though, when March comes around. They're like, when's when's that last shoe got to drop? Whereas Arkansas fans are like, hey, we can do this. We beat Gonzaga last year. We have a lot of good wins. I'll get you out of here on a few quick hitters. Amani Bates. People want to know what's going on there. I'm happy for him. I'm happy that at least he's home. He's at Eastern Michigan. But objectively speaking, this is a bit of a fall from grace for Imani Bates. Uh, handicap that situation and what we should expect from him moving forward. So a few things, right? I think first, there is some like legit-ish talent at Eastern Michigan. By, like again, mid-American conference. Which is obviously not a high-major roster. But like Noah Farrakhan was really good for them last year. They brought in like three dudes who were at high-majors. Legend Jeter, who was at providence they brought the kid from georgetown jalen billingsley like this roster is not completely barren around him i'm not sure it's the thing the situation for him to prove what he needs to prove from an nba standpoint which is i can do something other than heave shots right like everyone knows that amani can put him up and i think everyone is confident that amani's gonna be able to score it's like how can he impact winning how can he like be a value add to a team if he's not the best player which he's never really not been so I think that's like a tricky thing for a situational context, but I was thinking that was all he was looking for. And at the end of the day, like he was going to go to that type of situation. So um, yeah, I'm hopeful that it works out for him. I don't think that people should think that you're just going to walk into a mid-major league and, you know, pummel everybody because you're Jeremiah Bates and you had an elite recruiting pedigree. And if he walks in with that mindset, he's going to fail. Like he's going to get punked by dudes who are really, really, really competitive and really athletic and really tough and really well coached. Like there are great coaches in that league. Todd Kowalczyk does an unbelievable job at Toledo. Um, you know, Jeff Bowles does a great job at Ohio. Like uh, Rob Senderoff does an outstanding job at Kent State. Like the level of, of talent and the level of coaching in that league, they will not be intimidated by Imani Bates. But I, I think he certainly has the talent to be an all-league guy. He, he could be a player of the year type guy. And it would be great for the sport if they were just interesting because he had a great year and they're competitive and maybe they make an NCAA tournament and, and he's in the mix. So I'm hopeful that he turns it. I'm not necessarily confident that he will. It just kind of feels like he has lost his swagger, his confidence. I hope he gets it back, but I haven't seen anything that indicates he will. Yeah, agreed on all points. Something also, a, a neat storyline of the hometown kid coming back and helping lift his team to, I can't tell you the last time Eastern Michigan was in an NCAA tournament game. So uh, I'd be curious to know what that stat is. All right, best environment you've ever been in covering a game? Best environment. I would say I would say the Final Four game between Duke and Carolina, if only because, obviously, it's, it, it's so like not comparable to any other gym. Uh, because you're in a football stadium but like i will never forget this like collective like feeling in the arena like walking around right after like caleb love sunk them and you're like like holy cow like that's it and like this like half going insane this half being like oh my god like our guy is gone like we just lost like 
the, the realization like as it was happening for all these fans that like they were either going to have a bragging right thing for the rest of their lives or like a thing that they were never going to get to forget for the rest of their lives from their Carolina friend friends like like that was just unreal uh so I, I think that has to take the cake just because of the I will never forget the you could like you could pierce the energy in the in the room and I've never felt that way in my entire life except in that shit I mean the second love pulled up for that three and then it dropped. I mean, I'm a sucker for sport. I think best sports sounds are, uh, you know, when the ball goes through the net and the crowd just erupts like that Chris Jenkins shot at Villanova or the crack of a bat. And then the crowd erupts knowing it's a home run. Uh, that Caleb love shot was amazing. Okay. Worst environment you've had to cover a game. And I'm talking like, I would, I, you love what you do, but you're like, I'd rather be at small Cheval or all having a burger or something like that. Oh man. Um, that's a really that's a that's a hard question. I don't want to like throw anybody under the bus. You can be political if you want. I've let people I've let p- people play be very diplomatic. Probably, I mean, I would say probably like some of the neutral games that I've been to. Like I was in Vegas for the uh, the Maui Maui in Vegas, and there was like like twelve people at like some of the night game sessions, and you're like, okay, like what are we what are we really doing here? Like, who does anyone actually care that this game is happening? Um, so I would say probably that I was really fortunate. Like I was at some unbelievable, like gyms, unbelievable environments, uh, this past year. Uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't know if there was any like really bad ones. I got a speeding ticket going to Wisconsin the day they won the big 10, uh, championship game. So the outside the arena atmosphere in, uh, in the Madison area was not great that day. Uh, but otherwise, I mean, some of the gyms were just, just unreal. So no, no, no complaints. Otherwise speeding ticket in Madison. They beat my guys two times in the elite eight. If you want to join the Wisconsin hate group, all you got to do is let me know, Kevin, I'll be happy to welcome you to it. We'll, uh, we'll get you out of here on these last two, the Guster tweet. You remember that from Norlander yes. uh, during the tournament. So the reason I bring that up is because actually the, one of the co-hosts on this show, I, I shit you not one of the co-hosts on this show, the shark, he was the one that set off this complete shitstorm during it. His tweet, uh, if you don't recall, I'm sorry, but I hate the this Guster is for lovers guy. <laughs> Ruining a perfect game with your stupid bumper sticker on your stupid computer. Go to a coffee shop, you bum. Jeff Goodman picked it up saying, also, no one was more spot on with this tweet last night than this guy. Um, what was your reaction to that? I don't know if you recall that because we're, we got a we got a Carolina Duke game, Coach K's potential final game, and Twitter the Twitter versus talking about Guster a little bit. I was just like I was like a little confused because so like so the reason why like Norlander was on the screen in the first place is that like because he works for CBS he gets like a different seat than everyone else. Like we're all like on this like row and like we can't really see each other's computers. Like we're and he's on the other side like behind the Duke bench. So I'm like. What is going on? Like, I wasn't even out yet, I don't think. I think I was, like, originally I was still writing, like, my Kansas story for beating Villanova. And I'm, like, seeing all these tweets, like, Guster, Guster. And I was, like, trying to figure out what the hell it meant. And I was, like, oh, right, Norlander, stupid laptop sticker. Like, I remember now. Um, and, like, watching it go, like, we have, a like, a breaking news Slack channel at Sports Illustrated. And, like, people were reacting to it. And I was, like, sitting there and, like, reading all these tweets that people were sending in this breaking news. I'm, like, what, what, what is, like, what is happening? Like, I have, I have, I have literally no idea why we're talking about this, but it was uh, it was yet another memorable moment in a very memorable Final Four. No well, my co my co host is packing for Hawaii right now, so that's why he wasn't able to join. But we had something similar to that Slack channel. It was just our text group. He tweeted it out, and maybe five minutes, I don't know, a TV the next TV commercial. He looks at his his Twitter, and he's got it's just blowing up. He's like, "Holy shit! I did not think that this was gonna uh, gain steam." Guster even chimed in. It was just a it was chaos. It was something else. And and I will say Jeff Goodman loves to make fun of anyone in the uh, sports media landscape. He like roasted me for my parallel parking on Twitter last time he was in Chicago. So uh, no one is safe. Uh, Norlander at his Guster sticker included. Hey, Chicago's a tough place to park. Kevin, I'm going to get you out of here on this very last question. This is what we do with all of our guests, and they've all been so gracious to bring them up on stage. That's what we call it. Any individuals uh, – men or women that you can refer to me that you think would enjoy coming on to theater and college hoops, exchanging some stories as, as you were so great to do. Man. I mean, so many people, I'm so fortunate. Like I, like I said, I kind of threw out like the people I've met is just unbelievable in this industry coaches and, and some of the people you've had on the show, like Mark Rogers is, is a guy that I met over the year, over the, over the last year and like gotten to know him. He's been so great to me. So 
uh, I, I would say probably all the guys who are working on the the uh, Almanac, the new uh, preview magazine. I'm I'm not part of that because it would be competing with Sports Illustrated, but just like an unbelievable project. And I think that a lot of people would appreciate like knowing the work it takes to put something like that together. I have like a small idea because I talk to them every day. But the three man weave guys, obviously Matt, Jim, and Kai. Uh, you know, uh, and then the heat check guys, Eli Becker and, and Connor Hope and Lucas Harkins and Brian Ralph and Riley Davis. Like those dudes. And then work they put in Sean Paul, like the dudes they put in behind the scenes to make this thing a reality that I think will educate everyone who follows college basketball. I think that that's my that's my group endorsement is any any and any anyone from the the almanac deserves to get a little state a little seat at the stage and uh, and talk about the uh, talk about the work that it takes to put together a gigantic preseason magazine. I appreciate that. Well, now I have insider knowledge. I know for a fact that you're in contact with them in your text groups. If I tug on your shirt to be like, hey, Kevin, I might DM this person. I may need you to connect us. Um, I know at least you're in contact with them. But Kevin Sweeney, thank you so much for jumping on, sharing your insights. This was really terrific. I cannot wait for the upcoming season. And best of luck to you moving forward. We will be reading and listening to wherever you are. Okay. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate it, man. Uh, thanks, thanks for uh, thanks for the time, and uh, looking forward to a great upcoming season. All right, we want to thank Kevin again for hopping on to theater and college hoops, hopping onto the podcast, and sharing a lot of his stories. Very interesting. Uh, the way he was able to go through high school, building up his blog, his followers, then getting an internship at si.com because of how good he was having some of these senior guys, these more seasoned guys tap him on the shoulder and say, Hey, catch you just as an intern, man, we need you doing real life uh, or real, real full-time employed employee stuff. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. And then of course his takes on the upcoming year, I thought it was very interesting. His initial outlook on Frank Martin um, sort of thinking he was going to, take this as a quote unquote retirement job at UMass, but in in reality knowing is anything, but right. He's hitting the road. He's enthusiastic. It seems like he has a renowned or refreshed verber, uh, you know, about him. So very much looking forward to UMass and what they do. I think the word I was looking for was fervor. I don't think verber is a word. It's a little late. My brain is soup. I'm actually coming off of a couple days removed uh, from a bachelor party in Nashville. So my brain still a little soupy. It takes me about three to four days after a bachelor party, especially one in Nashville to get my mind right. So I meant fervor, not verber, but want to thank Kevin yet again for jumping onto the program. We're going to reach out to some of those guys that worked on that brilliant almanac. Thank you guys all again for listening. And we will catch you next time here on theater and college hoops.